glad that Rich was talking about delight because I have spent the day delighting in watching all of you with your families, helping one another out, watching the kids delight in one another. Uh, it's just been a day full of joy. So thank you for again for this opportunity of being with you. Um, we're going to continue our questions. And we spent this morning talking about who. And I said, when I said who, a few people said, I thought you were going to say, who is God? And uh, I love the verse that says, we love because God first loved us. And so I tend to like to start with God loving us. And then how do we respond? How do we receive that and come to know him? Because it's always his action first, him pouring his love into us. And so we talked about how we are the people that he sees us to be. And that he does give us these beautiful names, his, these names of delight. And now, though, I want to go on to our next question. So after who is, what, what? But we're going to talk about what do we believe about this God who loves us. So it really should be another who, but I liked using what, so that's, we're going to talk about who is God. Um, and one thing that I think is important is we're still always going to focus on how great God is and how much he loves us. And so all of these questions kind of just keep building on that same theme. So we just talked about how he loves us. Now let's talk about who this God is that loves us. Let's begin with prayer. I give praise to you, Lord, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Lord, we do give you praise. You have revealed these things to the childlike, and we come to you as your children. We thank you for the gift of Jesus in our lives and how he reveals the Father and the Father reveals Jesus, and through them we receive the Holy Spirit. We just ask that as we spend this time together that we would come to know who you are more, what we believe about you, the one who loves us so very much. In your holy name we pray, amen. Wow, it's hot. <laughs> um, you can pray for me because I'm going to attempt to cover salvation history and give you time to pray and finish in about half an hour. <laughs> but I like to think about salvation history in thinking about three different trees, three trees. And uh, several years ago, I was in a class, and the teacher was talking about a book that he read on how to read a book. And in the book, How to Read a Book, it said you should start by reading a few paragraphs or pages at the beginning, and then you should go to the end of the book, read a few pages there, because then you know how you're starting and where you want to end, and it'll help you get through the middle. So, not a great recommendation for a mystery. 
Uh, but I think it really, really works well with the Bible because the Bible has so much in it and it's so rich and it's so beautiful and it all, all points to one thing and that is God's love for us. But it can, you can kind of get lost in the weeds. So we're going to look at the beginning, we're going to look at the end, and then we're going to talk about how God gets us from one place to the other. I have the wrong book. So the first book of the Bible is Genesis. Anyone know how it starts? In the beginning. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, God goes on and he says, let there be light. And I just want to take a step back and remember that God had you and I in mind before this even began. Before he said, let there be light. Before he put his plan in motion, he had us in his heart. He goes on and he creates the heavens and the earth and light and darkness and sun and moon. And after six days, he looks at all he has made and he's created animals and plants and human beings and he says, it is very good. And that's the creation story that's in Genesis 1. But I really want to focus a minute on the creation story in Genesis 2. Because I think this is a place that I go back to a lot when I go back to who am I. I'm kidding. I get that. <laughs> that light is like right on my face. Um, and, and I think this really defines who I am. I have a new Bible. It's large print. And <laughs> I'm not used to it yet, so I apologize. Um, okay, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and he blew into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And I think so many times that that description of, of God creating human beings, now it's probably poetry, I don't know that it actually happened, but I think it describes my existence so beautifully because on one extreme, I'm just a lump of clay. But on the other extreme, I contain the breath of God. And so my life is to be lived between these two extremes in this beautiful creation that he has made for us. So God takes the man and he settles them in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. And the Lord God gave man this order. You are free to eat of any of the trees of the garden Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's our first tree, from that tree you shall not eat, for when you eat of it you shall die. And God also placed in the middle of the garden the tree of life. So in the garden we have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God says it's not good for man to live alone, so he creates animals, eventually he creates Eve. And then, of course, we have this tragic circumstance where this serpent enters the garden and he tempts Eve and we have the, the fall. And G.K. Chesterton is a great author from about 100 years ago and he says, original sin is the only doctrine that has been empirically validated by 2,000 years of human history. You can look at any person and you can say, yeah, original sin exists. 
So we have this moment where we fell. And what I love about this is within that same chapter, just 15 short verses later, we have this verse. If you want to impress your friends, it is called the Proto-Evangelium. And this is what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike at your hand, while, head while you strike at their heel. And that verse is the first indication that God gives that he is going to send a redeemer. So God creates this beautiful place for us to live. He creates human beings. He creates all this beauty for us to enjoy, for our enjoyment, because he loves us so much. But he wants us to love him in return, so he has to give us a choice. If he doesn't give us a choice, then, then that's not love. Love demands and it necessitates a choice. He wants us to choose him. But unfortunately, we choose not God. Instead of choosing to trust in him, we say, you know, I really want to decide what's right and wrong. And when I look at my own life and I look at our world today, that, there's your example of original sin over and over and over again because how often do I say, no God, I really want it my way. I don't trust in your love for me, I want it my way. But in God's goodness already he has a plan for a redeemer. So now we're going to jump to the end, which is Revelations. And in the last chapter, he says this. The angel showed me a river. Oh, I forgot an important part. When, God, when man fell, falls and God puts in motion his plan for Redeemer, what does he do with Adam and Eve? Does anyone know? He kicks them out. He casts them out of the garden. He says, See, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. If he reaches out his hand to take fruit from the tree of life and eats of it and lives forever, then what? The Lord therefore banished him from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had been taken. He expelled the man, stationing the cherubim and the fiery revolving sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. He doesn't want us to live in this fallen state. He has a better, better plan for us. So he takes them out of the garden because he does not want them to eat of the tree of life. But we go to the book of Revelation. The angel shows me a river of life-giving water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the land down the middle of the street. On either side of the river grew the tree of life. This is the same tree. We still only have two trees. Nothing accursed will be there, found there anymore. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will look upon his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, nor will they need light from lamp or sun, for the Lord God shall give them light, and they shall reign forever and ever." Do you see all the similarities between the very first chapter, first chapters of the Bible and the last? We have God. We have the tree of life. In the first few chapters, everything becomes cursed. Now it says nothing accursed. His servants will worship him instead of choosing their own way. 
Adam took time, to, was given the command to name all the animals. Now God's name is going to be on the forehead of his people. We don't need night and day anymore, a lamp or a sun, because God himself shall give them light. He says, behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are they who wash their robes so as to have the right to the tree of life and enter the city through its gates. So somewhere between the very first chapters of the Bible and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, people have been able to re-enter freely this gate and have access to the tree of life. But there's one character in Revelation that's not really, or is in a, hidden in a different way in the, in the book of Genesis. Does anyone know what that is? Did you catch it? To God and the, the Lamb. So we have this promise of the Redeemer, that's, but it's a really hidden, cloaked promise. But now at the end, we have the throne of God and of the Lamb. In between is the story of salvation history. And in between is our third tree. When do we hear really clearly someone saying, Behold the Lamb of God? John the Baptist. Right away in the beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. If we had had the fall at the beginning, and someone said, Oh, the Lamb of God, people wouldn't have a clue what that meant. So God had to take all this time to prepare his plan of salvation that was going to get us from the beginning where he creates this paradise for which, in which we are to live and the actual paradise in which we will live with him eternally. And he has to make it, have it make sense to us. So he, takes, he starts with Abraham. Actually, he starts way back, but we only have... 25 more minutes, so <laughs> we're going to skip. He has Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we have this nation of Israel. And Israel gets enslaved in Egypt. And now we've got this understanding of slavery and freedom. Just like we have in our own lives, this slavery, to, we're slaves to sin, but we seek this freedom. And so these, these, the Israelites are in Egypt for 400 years, and they're crying out to God for redemption. So God sends them a redeemer, and I'm just going to cover this really quickly because I really want to get to the New Testament, but he sends them a redeemer. We have Moses, and he, he says to, goes up to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no. So God sends all these plagues, including the last plague, which leads to, does anyone know what the last plague is? Death. And God had told Adam and Eve in the garden, if you eat of this tree, you will die. So here we have this death again, rearing its ugly head. But God provides a way for the Israelites to become free, to, to be free, set free from this death and led into the promised land. So what he does is he says, I want you to take this innocent lamb who's done nothing, this perfect lamb, and I want you to slaughter it. And you're going to take the blood and you're going to put it on the cross posts of the door. And anyone who has that blood over them will be f set free from death. They will not experience death. 
They are to eat the lamb so they've got food for the journey. And then they enter, they, go, they leave this land of slavery and they go into this new promised land. And then what he says to them is he says, I want you to do this every year, every single year. You're to take a, a lamb, you're supposed to go through it, and you need to remember what I did here. And so for 1,200 to 1,500 years, every single year, the Jewish nation celebrated Passover so that when the Lamb of God came upon the scene, that made sense to them. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for someone to set them free from sin. So, again, I love salvation history, and I could spend so much time looking at all the different little ways that God prepared his people for this. But what I really want to look at is what happened after 1,500 years after that first Passover. And on that day, on the day of, of, of the celebration of Passover, we have Jesus, who is going through the Passover. And at Lent this year, for some reason, I was praying... And I was just, it was like, I, I know the story, and it's easy to kind of go through the story of what Jesus did for us, but I was reading this verse, and it hit me in an entirely new way. The high priest questioned Jesus and his disciples about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in a synagogues in the temple where all the Jews came together. I've said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Why don't you ask those who have heard me? They know what I said. When he said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And I read that and I thought, he just struck God. He just struck God. And I thought, Lord, how often do I just take you for granted? How often do I miss you? And then I went and I looked at the, the passion and I thought of Jesus in the garden. And he's in the garden and he's asking the Father to take this cup from him. You know, we prayed earlier with A-R-R-R, and we're going to do that for the rest of our time here. But we see Jesus doing this in the garden. He acknowledges to the Father, this is what's going on in my heart. I don't want this. It, it's too hard. Please take this cup from me. He acknowledges it. He acknowledges it. He acknowledges it. He relates it to the Father. And then he receives the Father's word this is my will. My will is that you go through and you drink this cup. And then if you notice, from that moment on, when Jesus goes through his passion, he's going through his passion in the state of, of peace and control and humility, this utter humility, that he would receive the blows. Is this how you answer the high priest? And receive that slap.
he was betrayed by a kiss. This goes back to the very beginning that we talked about Jesus, the Father breathing life into us. We were created with the kiss of God. And how do we repay him? We betray him with a kiss. His closest followers, he lived with these people for three years. He ate with them. He slept with them. He did miracles. He provided for them. He healed. He shared his most intimate secrets with them. And he was betrayed by a kiss. His closest friends fled, all but one. And the person that, who said he was going to defend him to the death denied him three times. You know, if I were making up God, if I thought, oh, I wonder who, you know, what would I, what would I create for my own God? I could see creating a God that created Genesis, and I could see a God that has that, the story of heaven at the end. I would never come up with a God who would love us so much that he would give up heaven and come down and allow us to treat him so poorly for love of us. We are the ones he came to save, and how do we thank him? When I can't fall asleep at night, I go through the alphabet and I think of attributes of God. And during this time of Lent, I started also coming up with the ways that we hurt him. We accused him. We betrayed him. We crucified him. We made him die. So he goes through the agony in the garden. He's betrayed by a kiss. His friends flee. He's whipped, stripped, and crowned with thorns. Did you ever realize that when he is in front of Pontius Pilate and, and he's be, being put before the crowd, what does Pontius Pilate say? Behold, I find no guilt in him. He was proclaimed innocent, like that perfect spotless lamb. And yet he's the one that's crucified. We are the ones who are guilty. And we are set free. He's nailed to the cross. He's on the cross suffering. And all of this is going, is happening in just this, like I said, God, he was calm. He just is, it's like his whole divinity was just concealed. But when he said, it is finished, there's an earthquake. The temple is, uh, the, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. And they pierce the, the soldier pierces his side and says, surely this is the son of God. It's like his divinity then was finally set free. This is the God who delights in us. Even though we do all this, even though we can't see him all the time, that we neglect him, we, we mistreat him, he still says, I would rather do that for you than live without you. That is how precious you are to me. When he chose us from the foundation of the world, he knew that he was going to do this for you and for me. That's how much he loves us. St. Augustine says that faith is to believe what you do not see, and the reward of this faith is to see what you believe. 
I want to stop there and have some time of prayer because I want us to really have an opportunity to see the lengths that God will go through for each of us. We've seen it today with our kids. What would you do for your kids? I was just with this young mom uh, a few days before we left. She's got a five-week-old, and she hasn't slept, and uh, she's really concerned about um, just protecting this child so she hasn't received a lot of help. And she just said, I just will do anything for my child. You, you name it, I will do it for my child. And that is the God that we have. That is what he says for each of us. I will do anything for you. So we're going to pray once again. And the verses this time are from Romans 5. Um, for Christ, while we were still helpless, died for the ungodly. The second verse is, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And the third verse are the passages from Revelation. And you can pick again whichever one speaks to you. Or, if you feel so led, you can just spend time just thinking about Christ's passion. Just go through that and walk through that and say, Lord, you did this for me. And, and have him show you his love for you in that way. And Pete, what time do you want us to wrap? Eight fifteen. Okay. Okay. So let's pray. Let's begin again, realizing that we are in God's presence. Take a moment to realize that this God who created the universe, this God who is seated on the throne in heaven where he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and this God who died upon that third tree for us is looking at us with love right now. Now let's just take a moment and acknowledge what's in our hearts, what our thoughts and our feelings and our desires. We may be tired, very tired after a long day, but also just to our desire to know more about this God who loves us, who delights in us so much that he is willing to go to great lengths literally to death for us. And then take those thoughts and feelings and desires and relate them to God. Tell him about your day and about how you're desiring to hear from him about his love for you. And then we'll take about 
10 minutes or so just to receive from the Father. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to take time to receive your love in a new way. We thank you that you love us so much that you, the creator of the universe, would humble yourself to come and to live among us and to die for us that we might live for you. In your precious name we pray, amen. Usually when we read a book and we get to the climax of the book, the rest is literally anticlimactic. Um, but with the Bible, it's not, that's not the case because when we get to the climax of the book, that's where we enter in. Now it becomes our story. If you read the book of Acts, the early church, it just kind of stops, like almost mid-sentence. And someone said that that's purposeful because it's like then that's where we pick up and we keep going. The early church is now our church, and we are to, to live this life of Jesus. Uh, there's a quote from this book that I got out thinking it was my Bible. It says, The whole spiritual life is dominated by the cross. And as the cross is the central point in the history of the world, so it is the central point in the history of every soul. And that's where I want to leave us. Jesus redeemed humankind by dying for us. What he asks of us is the very same thing. We are to die to ourselves. I am crucified with Christ. And then I no longer live, but he lives in me. And then I live in this new resurrected life of love. Let's pray. I give you praise, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed this magnificent, salvific love that you have for each and every human soul. Help us to die to ourselves and to rise to new life in you. Amen.